this week on the Backtable Podcast. The precision point is robotic prostatectomy. It's that simple, David. And anybody that doesn't understand that has not used the device. Because if you look at the device, you're like, well, uh, pretty straightforward, whatever, holding a needle. And they ran numbers to say that in the United States, if everybody switched to local anesthesia transperineal biopsy with the precision point, the U.S. system would save anywhere between like $340 and $750 million in the United States. So they saw even in Kaiser's network that their value in eliminating complications and proving diagnosis more than paid for things. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Backtable podcast. Today, I'm very excited to guest host the podcast, and we've cross-pollinated a very special episode that's going to be of interest both to urologists and really to any budding entrepreneurs, especially those in the medical device arena. Our guest probably needs no introduction if you're in urology circles. More than a million prostate biopsies are performed worldwide annually, both for diagnosis and monitoring of prostate cancer. And if you've ever contemplated transperineal prostate biopsy, you know Dr. Matthew Alloway. And just to give a brief synopsis, and Matt, you can fill in the gaps in a minute, Dr. Alloway received his undergrad degree from Illinois Benedictine College and then his DO degree at Midwestern University. And he went on to do his urology residency at West Virginia University. And he's been a practicing urologist for over 20 years at Urology Associates in Cumberland, Maryland. And he specializes in female urology and prostate cancer. And he, Matt developed the Precision Point, which is a medical device that facilitates transperineal prostate biopsy. Did I get anything wrong there, Matt? No, that was perfect, David. Thank you. So let's start off a little bit further back. What led you to a career in medicine? Why did you become a urologist? And what sort of brought you to where you are today? I didn't want to be a, a physician initially. I, I wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to go into the military and the flight program. But I was denied based on uncorrected visual limitations, you know, basically nearsighted, bad, bad case of myopia. And as a result, um, you know, I kind of got fascinated with the idea of vision and science and all of this building on um, the idea of maybe pivoting to a different uh, career. That's what really um, was one motivator. And then I, I unfortunately had a very bad cancer. It was a form of testicular cancer, but it was much more complex because it wasn't in the gonads, uh, but in the retroperitoneum. And we're talking in the mid-90s now. So, you know, CT scans technology was a little bit different. And all the fine work that was done at Indiana University where I was treated uh, for much of my therapy kind of inspired me with urology. I was sort of like, wow, these guys, you know, they're they're doing great surgery. They're, um, you know, they're, they're also cool people. You know, they're easy to talk to, sensible. And um, I, I liked the more I explored the idea that urology was one of the perfect blends of clinical and surgical, lots of options. You know, if you don't like to do big surgeries, there's lots of procedures. There's always something new in the technology space with urology also, as we've written through the years. And so, you know, I just kept my eye focused on urology. And, you know, I never look back either. You know, I look at other specialties and I, I still think urology is still represents one of the greatest um, specialties we have. Well, you know, thanks for sharing the, the personal side there. If I can just pull on that thread a little bit more before we get to talking about Precision Point, how has your personal experience, if you're comfortable sharing, colored the way you interact with patients for the rest of your career? I mean, it, I mean, it was probably the greatest thing that ever happened to me having cancer, you know, cause I went through two full RPLNDs. I eventually they found out I had a burned out primary focus in the testicle. So I had an orchiectomy. I had nine cycles of platinum based chemo, you know, so this dragged on for five years and, you know, thankfully I survived, but that was the greatest lesson. Cause you know what it's like to be on the other side of the equation. And I think it just brings a certain level of empathy to the care you give. Plus, it made you think about, you know, things that led to other developments in my career, you know, getting into the transperineal space, wanting to make a contribution back to the field. Like, even though I'm not in academia, you know, I, I still felt that I could make contributions to the field. I thought it would be somewhere in the realm of testicular cancer, but 
testicular cancer is still one of the greatest success stories of urology and cancer treatment in general. Therefore, there wasn't much I can contribute there. And then I wound up kind of like landing in the prostate biopsy diagnostic space of all things. Uh, even though a lot of my passion through my career was female urology because I saw lots of gaps and, you know, surgical techniques and durability of our surgeries for prolapse. So that really had me involved in that space. But truly, you know, I would always say that some of the worst things that happened to us in our life proved to be the greatest lesson. And for me, the whole cancer experience really lives with me every day. When I see patients, I'm dealing with families, you know what it's like going through that with them. So, I mean, it's a level that <laughs> I wouldn't wish upon anybody, but it did turn out to be something of a, a blessing. You know, that's that's unbelievable to me on several levels, not just the added empathy that I'm sure your patients can feel, but but also you're wanting to give back. And it also highlights that the areas where we think we're likely to make contributions often aren't the areas where we end up, you know, as long as we uh, we, we have an eye out for opportunities. But, you know, on that note, let's dig right in. Let's hear about the origin story of, of the Precision Point device, you know, how it began. The tide, of, for non-urologists in the audience, the tide is shifting from transrectal prostate biopsy to transperineal for a number of reasons. I was personally somewhat late to the game. I, you know, as you tell us the origin story, tell us if you saw this whole thing coming. I've always, in my practice, looked at how we do things, and I look at the guidelines, and I look at the data, but a lot of urology still is in the realm of the unproven. You know, we, there's a lot of things we do that don't have level one evidence. And it was 2013 when I made a decision, I'm no longer going to do a trans rectal biopsy. Most people think it's just because of the infectious issues, but I had a patient who, he was a pharmacist, he was a friend, and I diagnosed him with low-grade cancer. And his PSA was just not behaving the way I would have expected, but every repeat or confirmatory biopsy pretty much validated that, you know, he just had low risk disease. Finally, we just decided, you know, we've got to pull the plug on this. And when he finally got his prostate removed, he had high-grade cancer in the anterior prostate. And by that time, you know, it would already spread into the lymph nodes and he eventually died of prostate cancer. And it was very upsetting to me because I just thought about the, the basic geometry of how I was biopsying a prostate transrectal. The vectors of the needle were just not appropriate. The template, this 12-core template, completely neglected the anterior half of the prostate. Now, in 2013, you know, the prostate MRI was gaining a lot of steam and we did start dabbling in it, but it, it wasn't really to the point it is today. So many would argue, well, you know, we would, um, we would have probably spotted that cancer on MRI and that may be true. However, clearly uh, there was a lack of appreciation of the anterior half of the prostate, even the apex. Second was obviously, you know, again, having met in active surveillance, when they do have an infection or sepsis and you go to visit them in the hospital, usually in the morning, because they always tend to show up with sepsis like in the middle of the night. So you go do your rounds in the morning and you're, you walk in the patient's room and, you know, the, the patient's there. He's got a, uh, a wet towel on his forehead, his wife's by his side, and they, and they give you a look. It's a half smile, a worry, but the look on their faces, this shouldn't happen. Why did this happen? And uh, I would look at the guidelines with the AUA, and, and, and there were reports coming out in 2012 that were sort of addressing the infection problem. But it was like, well, if you're not having good luck with quinolones, then go back to sulfas or add this or add that. And then the rectal swabs came into the scene. And I just thought, you know, at the end of the day, my job as a urologist is to do a really good job on surgery or procedures. I don't want to be a microbiologist. I don't want to be an infectious disease doctor tinkering with all these antibiotics. Just go through the perineum. I mean, so infections, sepsis, missing cancers, I saw one solution, go through the perineum. Now, I didn't do much research on this. I didn't look to see what was happening around the world because, quite frankly, here I am in Cumberland, Maryland, relatively rural. It was really just about me and my practice. In fact, I didn't even share a lot of this with my partners at the time. I just decided we're not doing this anymore. And, but how are we going to do this? How are we going to switch 
from transrectal to transperineal. And, you know, there was the option of using a, a grid stabilizer stepper like we use for brachytherapy and then essentially, you know, sort of retrofitting it just to do biopsies. I have a stepper right in my surgery center where I do biopsies and um, I just didn't like the idea of it. The vectors off the grid were also wrong. It's like you couldn't fly into the exact zone or seam of tissue precisely. So what I did was something really similar to what I did for cryosurgery of the prostate, where I never used the grid for cryo. I, I did a freehand technique where I would basically just have one hand on the ultrasound probe and the other hand on the cryo probe, and then try to navigate the tip of the cryo probe to the destination. So I thought, well, let's just do that with the biopsies. And I just jammed a 14-gauge angiocath into the perineum, and I you know, would stick the biopsy needle through it, which eventually became called the coaxial needle technique, which I didn't think anyone had done it. I didn't see any reports. No one in the U.S. had really talked about it at all. It turns out the Italians do deserve credit for this because there, there was a small pocket of urologists in Italy that had actually used a coaxial needle. But, you know, I kind of felt that, you know, I'd started that movement doing that. And that was really the genesis of the whole idea, like, let's switch. And the results were pretty obvious even early on that we were on to something pretty good. It was actually quite quite interesting as I saw my cancer detection just rise pretty much overnight. So you've gone through so much there. I just want to highlight a couple of things. So you are concerned about the infection risk. You're sounds like a little bit more concerned about the geometry of missing the anterior aspect of the prostate transrectally. You decide to make a change, but just to set the stage a little bit more, even in retrospect, what was the conversation around transperineal prostate biopsy in 2013 in urology in general? Do you have a sense? Were people starting to talk about it or was there really not much going on? No, nothing, zero. And even though our friends across the pond were already dabbling in this, mostly with a grid stepper, uh, in fact, almost entirely grid stepper, um, I, I had no connection with the European community in a urology sense. So it was just me, you know, showing up for sectional meetings or the AUA, and there literally was nothing. In fact, I talked about it, and people thought, you know, I think you're a little crazy here. I don't, I don't, I don't even know why you're we're doing this. It didn't really register with urologists. In fact, the first year we had our our, our booth at the AUA, which was 2016, we had no FDA clearance at the time. Even then, you know, I'm, you know, seeing urologists walk by and they're just looking at us like, what are these people doing? But I knew it just made too much sense. You know, I think, I think everybody has a great idea inside themselves, especially if they love their work. Because if you love the work you do, you naturally try to find solutions to problems you're dealing with at every level. And I just knew when I started doing this, like this is, makes so much sense. I can't even think of one problem with it other than the fact that the coaxial needle just had too many limitations and problems to be, in my opinion, a mainstream approach. But at least it kind of got the job done with air quotes at the time. And it sort of like got my brain thinking about how we could take it to the next level. Let me just play um, psychologist for a second here because <laughs> I think you might be even underestimating how much courage it took for you to, to go out on a limb in 2013. I think it did. But if I had the opportunity to ask one of your best friends or your wife, what is it about Matt, Matt's personality that explains the fact that he did this, what would they say? Are you impatient? Are you, are you like courageous? I mean, what, what would they say? I think my wife, and I think she, she just even said it to me yesterday when I broke another rule. She said, you like to break rules. You like to just <laughs> kind of go against the grain of things. And I think that's probably correct. Like I, you know, I never really, if things didn't make sense or feel right in my gut, I just didn't want to go along with it. It, it had, everything had to make sense. And if, if I had to break the rules to do it, yeah, break the rules. Hopefully I'm breaking like, you know, these are very um, soft <laughs> sins of sorts, but um, that's what it was. Courageous. When I look back at what's happened over the last, you know, eight to 10 years, I, I don't, 
I think if I knew what I know now, I don't know that I really would have had the courage because life was pretty good before I got in this project. I mean, I was um, had a great busy practice. I was making um, a lot of contributions in our community with volunteer work. You know, I was making a you know good income, so everybody was happy. So everything really got ruffled after that. So that the courage of letting go of harmony that I'd worked pretty hard since leaving residency to attain was all suddenly disrupted. So courage wouldn't be the one. I think rule breaking or, or just things that don't make sense, I'm not going to do. A logical, simple approach. All right. Simple stupid is the acronym I think I like to live by. No, I, I like that uh, a lot. I like that answer. I mean, you know, I think if you think of the Venn diagrams between entrepreneurs and rule breakers, there's probably a lot of <laughs> a lot of overlap. So, did you early on somehow communicate this in the context of AUA meetings? And if so, how'd you do that? Yeah, that was really kind of wild. You know, I as I mentioned a moment ago, as I started, because I, I always kept track of my data. So ever since I started changing, I kept track of every patient, every core, to and started a, a what turned out to be a massive database. And as I started analyzing my first like 180, 200 patients, I saw my cancer detection went from somewhere in the 30 range, let's say 35 percentage to up to 53%, somewhere in that ballpark. Just like immediately, I, I started get, seeing a lot more cancer in the cores. Obviously, I got rid of not all antibiotics, because at the time, even those doing transperineal were afraid to not use a dose of prophylact antibiotic, but I simplified things to just ANSEF, very, very simple and straightforward. And I thought, I think I should probably do something about this, you know, maybe submit something to the AUA. So I, I put together a video. They they have these uh, surgical videos you could submit for competition at the AUA. And I, I was on the best of the best with my video. And it was kind of, it was kind of an odd feeling because the room was really filled. So they had like you know, a couple of days of videos and then they had the best of the best one. And then you got to do it once again and then field questions, actually field rotten tomatoes being thrown at you rather because it was so disruptive. It's like, wait a minute, what are you doing here? <laughs> Who are you anyhow? Because everybody presenting their, their videos were from institutions and there, you know, there are 10 authors on it and there was Matt Alloway, Cumberland, Maryland, that's it. And, you know, I just was showing what I did. And it was actually really well received and it really inspired me quite a bit. And actually it, it kind of got my foot in the door with other academic type AUA members that turn out to be in some ways KOLs and people that could just kind of help me navigate that world a bit more. Because I knew that in order to make a difference, it, it, everything I did had to be validated at a much higher level than Matt Alloway in Cumberland. It had to be validated at the university level. It had to be examined in peer-reviewed manuscripts to become legitimate and real. But that was an exciting year, 2014. And it was, it was the coaxial needle method. And after the meeting, you know, the biggest critique I received was, this is really tough. I mean, you're not going to be able to teach every urologist to do it because you have two vectors. You've got the vector of your hand on the probe, the vector on, on the probe um, or the biopsy device. And it's, I call it chopsticks technique because you're trying to get these vectors together. And, and it really is challenging to the brain to just wrap all this imagery together and try to maintain a three-dimensional view of where you're going. And there were problems with the trajectory of the biopsy needle too, but that and the fact that I was sedating everyone because I had the luxury of an, a surgery center that, that, that I'm part owners of. And so these were done under propofol essentially. So they said, oh, you know, you're increasing the cost and you're also, it's just too challenging. It's never going to mainstream. And my wife stepped in once again and just said, you need to make a better device or a methodology if you're really going to mainstream it. And that's when things really started to get exciting. Let's just address a misconception head on. I mean, here you are, you're in private practice presenting a great idea at the AUA. One uh, good measure of the fact that it was a great idea is that people are criticizing it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but there is this there is this perception that, you know, pres presenting at scientific meetings is, is what the academic uh, physicians do and not in private practice. So, but I'm sure that there are listeners out there who are in private practice who are brewing a good idea. So let's talk about that. What, what would you say to those people? Well, I, as a matter of fact, um, 
I would say at least once a quarter, someone reaches out to the company through our website and they send an email saying, you know, I've got an idea and I don't know what to do with it. I even get sent sometimes like packets of information with diagrams and sketches where people have taken their ideas to concept. And, um, you know, my, my dream was always like to try to create an incubator eventually that could help others. Cause you know, a lot of mistakes that I made, it would be so nice if somebody would have been there to help me navigate the process. But like I said early, you know, we all have a great idea, especially if we're passionate about our work and that great idea often just, it just fizzles because no one, they don't know what to do with the idea. They don't know where to take it. They don't know who to trust. And fortunately, there are these little incubators that are popping up, little medical device incubators um, scattered around the US. So what I've tried to do with these folks that come to me is, since I don't have the bandwidth or financial ability to bring them to market, I try to connect the dots. Okay, so you're gonna need to have, you know, you need a patent attorney, you need a manufacturer, you need to have uh, communication with maybe this company that can do this, and just try to introduce them to people that I think they can trust and that can help lead them on. Because remember, the idea is the simplest part of the whole business plan. I mean. I miss the days when I laid in bed for two or three hours a night, sometimes just like going over engineering designs and concepts and how to accomplish this. That was fun. That was the creative side of it. Now at the stage we're at with the company, it's not as much creativity. It's marketing, it's sales, it's regulatory, it's um, AUA coding and reimbursement committees. I mean, it's, it's a much more complicated, not always enjoyable part of the job. So you've got to be able to harness people's great ideas and keep that passion going because that's just the very beginning. So, uh, yeah, I mean, as you say, the, uh, the old adage goes, ideas are like anuses. <laughs> Everyone has one and they, and they, st and they stink. But uh, let's say that people do have a good idea. As you say, there's a high chance of ideas fizzling. Can you generalize when it comes to a medical device idea? What are the first one, two, or three steps that someone should commonly take? The first thing I would recommend is you've got an idea, you think it's an original idea, but is it really an original idea? So really start to, you know, write down on paper, well, the old proverbial napkin was that in fact the case. I mean, my first sketches, I still have them. So really detailed sketches of your idea, how it works, the components of it and then and then do your homework and see and explore to see if somebody's already come up with this idea because if somebody's already come up with the idea and, and it just just wasn't prime time then you know you may have a problem protecting your invention if you can't see any evidence out in the market then you have to do your own kind of mental feasibility test because i think you know i could have made the precision point a device that was so sophisticated that its cost to the user could be, you know, a thousand dollars a pop. Well, you know, the market is not going to sustain something like that. So when you think of your idea, think about the problem you're solving first. Does this invention solve a real problem? In this case, in urology, but whatever the space you're in. And if the answer is not really confidently yes, then you might want to rethink it again, because you know, a great idea that solves a little problem for a little niche of your, you know, your space is it may not carry enough weight to really travel through the whole evolution to uh, concept to commercialization. And then finally, I think you've got to identify a mentor very early if possible, because again, talking to somebody that's been through it and made mistakes, I, I always like to say that a conversation a conversation across the table with a wise man is much more valuable than reading volumes of books. And again, that's always been my philosophy. I'm like, so why not learn from somebody else's mistakes rather than trying to figure it all out myself? Don't think, don't think that you're an expert at every facet of what it will have to become to become a commercial success. I think those three would be a few that I would focus on early. That's great. I'm, I love this. So just to summarize a few points you said, 
you come up with a medical device innovation that you think is potentially a good idea, make sure that it is solving a specific problem. It's not a device for the sake of making a new device itself. Do research to make sure that the idea is, in fact, original. Get some very detailed sketches and drawings preliminarily down and find mentorship. Yes. Now, this is sort of adjacent to the concept of mentorship, but you mentioned just briefly half a sentence about your wife saying something to you in those early days. How influential has her support been? And tell us a little bit about that aspect. Yeah, I mean, well, my wife, you know, we because of that terrible cancer treatment that I went through, having kids was not really an option. Um, so it was like when we met selling shoes at Nordstrom's, um, you know, we, I said, look, you know, if, if we want to have a family, it's going to be challenging. If that's your goal, then I might not be the right dude for you. So we became best friends and we contributed. She, you know, she was a special ed teacher. So she's surrounded by lots of kids. You know, I try to take care of the community volunteer. So we, we do our job to be good citizens, but she really is without her. I don't think, well, first of all, we wouldn't be here right now talking because she was the one that kept inspiring me because there's, you know, it's kind of hard to juggle. Like you, you got to still practice medicine and you're trying to cultivate an idea that becomes a company. It's, it becomes daunting. And if you're not, if your family is not aligned with you, you're either going to wind up with in divorce or, or worse or unhappy and alone. And so you've got to, the journey has to be done together. So we, we've been on this journey together. One plus one equals three. She's had so many qualities I don't have, and I've got qualities maybe she's not as, is, um, uh, excels at. So, but together we can become a team. So many times, you know, as a husband, wife get together in a business, it ends in a disaster. If anything, it's strengthened our marriage and our life. It's given us a lot of purpose because again, we're, we're solving a problem that's good for society. So at the end of the day, no matter what happens, no matter what kind of commercial success or failure happens at the end of the day, we could say, you know, we did something pretty good for society. And she always managed because she wasn't a urologist or a scientist. The questions she would ask were very important because they were came from another angle. And so it's always been been really great and challenging too. You know, sometimes we say, gee whiz, you know, we talk about the life before all this and boy, it was so simple, wasn't it? But um, I don't think we have any regret <laughs> looking back. So for me, you know, my wife has been the most positive inspiration in my life, but for others, it could be a colleague. It could be maybe your children or, or you know, but my family, you know, was small, just me and her through the years. But quite frankly, I don't know how I could have done this if I was like you, David, because you've got four kids, right? Four or five. Five, five, five. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't even know how you manage it all because it's, you know, it's, you're nurturing a baby here and it requires constant attention in order for it to, to flourish and succeed. So, yeah, it's not, it's not easy, but, you know, I think, uh, Part of the nice thing about hearing your story is uh, to hear about the things that are challenging about it. And because, you know, when stories get retold, sometimes the difficult aspects get removed. But so now we know that your venture would not have existed without your wife. It sounds like an incredible relationship. We also know that it wouldn't have existed if you had perfect vision because you would have been a pilot. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a lot of things that could have pushed this into a different direction. But tell us, you know, because these things are often told as a straight line to success. T tell us early on, or maybe even right now, about the setbacks and the, the times where people told you this was a terrible idea and uh, a little bit more about the the roadblocks. Well, we were, fortunately, you know, we often had very clear skies and the stars were often lined up in our direction. So in many ways, we were fortunate to have, in some cases, very straight lines. For example, the FDA, which is normally, I mean, it's, it's, it's about, you know, 5% of medical devices actually wind up being cleared by the FDA. And of that 5%, it may only be another 5% that actually achieve commercial success which you can define one way or the other. So you're talking about, you know, it's a very thin group that can kind of get through those hoops. We were lucky, the FDA, we were one of the quickest device 
companies through the FDA. It took about eight months. Um, the CE mark, on the other hand, which is sort of the equivalent of the FDA in most of Europe and then other countries, that was actually a little bit more grueling. It used to be the CE mark was easier to attain. So people would get their devices approved in Europe, test the market, write some papers, then come to the US and get cleared by the FDA. Of course, then you get into the weeds about de novo and 510K pathways. And, and, and there are great differences between the two, but we had a pretty straight line through that. We did not have a straight line as far as like the idea and getting people to just latch on immediately. Even though we were solving a, an important problem, you know, people didn't flock to us immediately. You know, it, it took a lot of time and you had to find, you know, the right opportunities for people to buy into your concept. So for me, and again, we, we did things, I, we wanted to do things different than the norm. And what is the norm? The norm is you've got an idea that's great. You've got enough of a groundswell that you get some really good backing from either big private equity or venture capital. And they take the burden of financial responsibility in exchange for a tremendous equity position. We said, no, we're not doing it that way. We self-funded the entire project, which is another reason that I couldn't have done it without Kelly because she had to sign off on me cashing in life insurance policies and retirement investments because you know we had, we had saved for years and it's a very, very expensive process. So we thought we'd do things a little bit different. And in turn, you know, that didn't create a straight line in many ways. When you have venture capital backing, private equity backing, that money can be spent aggressively on on areas of marketing and um, basically funding universities to do research with your product. I had to go pitch it to the university level folks as a great idea that was great for patient care. I, I can't afford to fund your studies. I can't afford to give you free devices. You either believe in it or you don't. In fact, that was the first phase of our growth was not to go after the private practice urologist, but to go for the highest level academic institutions and let them write about it and let them talk about it. And if it was real, if this was a real deal, then they would get the results I, in my own research, have obtained. And then they would write positively. And then it would kind of build to phase two, which was to work with larger private practice groups, LUGPA groups, and just disperse then from there. Some of the um, manufacturing issues, boy, manufacturing sounds pretty straightforward. You make an injection mold, you pop them out, boom, boom, boom. There's a lot of nuts and bolts. I mean, you have to make injection molds. You have to hire engineers. You have to tweak your molds. I mean, we, we now completed our, our, our high, our, so injection molds can be rather um, less expensive, but they're softer molds and they don't have a large lifespan. Now we've, we've already burned through those. Now we're on molds to handle millions of shots and still hold up to the pressure. It's taken almost two years to complete those molds because you're talking about changing things, a micron here and a micron there. And so a lot of the manufacturing stuff, th there's not a lot of straight lines with that. So you definitely want to connect yourself with a really good medical device manufacturing company that hopefully offers multiple phases of production, everything from concept development to commercialization, because you could take a straight line and turn it into a zigzag that could take you down a rabbit hole and burn through most of your cash and not have a product to sell. This answer is so good. I actually wish this could be the back table three hour conversation, but <laughs> let me just let me just highlight a couple of things and get your thoughts. You told us the staggering odds against a medical device not only making its way through the FDA, but also becoming a commercial success. And then at the same time, you took the risk of you know essentially liquidating your savings. Either you're a very risk tolerant person, or more likely, you know you you saw some early strong signals that this was going to be an actual business. What were the strong signals initially that gave you the confidence to do that? There were a couple of things that were really important. When early users said, wow, why didn't I think of that? If somebody says about your idea after using it, I mean, you could describe anything pie in the sky, but if somebody uses your product and says, wow, why didn't I think of it? I could have thought of that. Darn it. That was really clever. That's a good sign you're onto something good. Things that are too complicated, too whimsical. I mean, yeah, there may be a role for them at some point, but that was what I was trying to do. The, the two words that I would 
wanted to describe the device with simple elegance, meaning very simple and straightforward, but elegantly does what it's supposed to do. So when I got that kind of feedback, I was like, okay, this is great. I know that I could put my device in the hands of most urologists and they're going to be able to use this tool to do the job. Number two was actually the success we saw overseas before the U.S. So, you know, we didn't, you know, most device companies, they feel that they should make their, you know, their booty, you know, pirate booty in the U.S., which is, you know, the more, uh, you know, so the U.S. is the number one medical device market. Number two is Japan. Number three is Germany. So, you know, you want to make your success in the U.S. But interestingly, in Europe, it took off really rapidly to the point that I knew, okay, if I can sell my device in a socialized medicine country and begin to dominate their practice, this has got to be a good solution for the U.S. So it was probably those two things that gave me the confidence. And then a lot of other minor factors too, you know, patents and approvals on patents and confidence in that area, confidence that, you know, we we could find somebody to buy the device too. I mean, you, we didn't completely outprice ourselves in the market. So those were some minor factors that gave me confidence. But at the end of the day, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I I've played craps you know, in Vegas before. I don't play craps anymore. But I I never considered myself really wanting to gamble my financial future. But I just, you know, I, I think every decision I've made in life is always followed by my gut. If, I, if you lay in bed and your gut feels good about it and it just seems, it just sinks in right, then I usually tend to go with it. So I always had that feeling. If, if it had not been a commercial success, would you still have enjoyed the ride? Absolutely. Well, the things I've learned, because I, I think that us physicians trying to get be entrepreneurs is tough because we didn't get where we're at by being entrepreneurs. We got to where we're at as urologists by following a script. The script is pretty straightforward. Excel academically, work really hard, and hope you get lucky also along the way. That script, there's not a script like that to be an entrepreneur. We, we, our brains weren't trained that way. So, you know, the script has not been really written. You've got to write it yourself. And I think, um, you know, that's, that's why I didn't consider myself an entrepreneur more than an inventor. But the problem is, is that in the past, you know, us physicians could be inventors and have an idea on a napkin, take it to a big company, and they would run with the rest and they would pay you royalties. Those days are over. It doesn't work like that anymore. Do you think that the characteristics that make an entrepreneur can be developed. Let's say let's say there's a young medical student or resident who has a sort of engineering bent and wants to develop a device but they don't have any ideas yet. Do you think these sorts of skills or a certain way of looking at the world can prime them for success? Yes, especially with medical device because again there are there are there are enough incubators that you can get your foot in with. And also a lot of the universities, you know, like Cleveland Clinic, I believe Johns Hopkins, a lot of those institutions try to harness the talent of their student body and invest in the ideas that they have to try to springboard them into a product. And so if you can team yourself up with these type of people online, you're gonna you can get there. But you need to be inspired and you need to feel like you're around people that are like-minded. The AUA did have sort of an engineering arm to it. Then they would have a little meeting at the AUA. I don't know what happened to that. I'm a little bit disappointed that the AUA has lost a little bit of its independence of saying, you know, we, we know the solutions to problems we face. If you look at the biggest commercial success devices in urology over the last 15 years, none of them were were created by a urologist. I mean, let's talk about Eurolift. They're, they're all PhD engineers that are coming up with the ideas in our space. But when you know the space like we do, you know, you can sniff out an idea right away and say, would I use this as a urologist? I mean, that was probably my greatest advantage starting this company was the fact that I, I'm just a, a regular hump urologist, you know, doing, you know, vasectomies and prostatectomies and stone cases. So 
I'm probably the best judge of, is this a good idea or not? We, we as, as the clinicians, we know the space, we know the problems. We should be coming up with the ideas. We should be fostering the new concepts that become the devices of the next generation. And, and I think there's enough inspirational books out there to kind of you know dip your toe in the water. And there's enough people out there that have been down the road. Most people like me and you, David, that have you know taken the risk, we would never turn down someone that needs advice because we know what it was like being you know in that situation. Yeah, there's a real um, zeitgeist of paying it forward. Let me ask you this. I've heard from other uh, medical device innovators, this is a generalization, but I wonder if you think it's true, that most practicing physicians uh, are going through their day and just getting through their day and trying to get to the other side. And very few are going through their day and looking for problems to be solved. And that ideas are unlikely to just hit you over the head like a mallet unless you are lo looking for them. Do you, do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. And I think, um, I think actually you, you, can, you can take that problem because you know I was busy too. So I wouldn't call myself lazy at all, but I would say that you know, liking to break rules, like looking for shortcuts. I always like the adage that, you know, I never respect somebody that works hard. I respect people that work smart. So if you're trying to work smart, then you're going to look for shortcuts, which means shortcuts to solve a problem, whether it's time management, whether it's uh, efficiency in the OR doing cases. And so I think that can spawn it. If you just think about, man, I want to have a better life. What kind of problems am I experiencing in in this you know this crazy schedule that I'm trying to work through? Well, look for the shortcuts. Boy, the the ideas, the problems are just dangling right in front of us. We just have to open up our eyes to it, and think smart. Think about it. Work smart, not hard. So maybe the lazy, intelligent people are going to be the ones that come up with the best ideas of the future. I like how you phrase that. Working smart, looking for shortcuts. I'm sure. There's somebody listening right now who's going who's gonna to follow in your footsteps. I want to pull on something that you mentioned earlier where you said that people weren't flocking to it immediately. And, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about the fact that it's notoriously difficult to change doctor's workflow, and especially for proceduralists. I know that there's a lot of proceduralists in the, in the audience right now. We get stuck in our ways of doing procedures, and it is very challenging to get people to change what they do. Have you encountered that with Precision Point? And if so, how, what are the ways that you overcome that? Yeah, well, you know, we all know the, the, the technology curve of innovators, early adopters, you know, late adopters, laggards, and all that. So in general, they say if, if you can capture the 15% of your market, you're crossing the chasm. You're gonna you're, you're gonna probably get there. But how do you get that 15%? What do you encounter? Well, I I've lived through it. Those innovators and early adopters, they flocked to us. They didn't care about cost or time management. They just loved the idea and they were like, I'm doing this. And that was fun because that was easy, you know. You know, pushing yourself through an open door is quite easy. And then, you know, the next wave, um, you know, they realize this is the future and they, they really know they, if they don't learn it now, they're gonna have to learn it later, might as well jump on board. And, and that's probably the biggest group we're working with now. We don't have 15% of biopsy market at this point. So I can't speak of the, the later phases, but you know, you're absolutely correct, especially because we're so much busier now. I mean, there's no time. How do you how do you peel off a day and say, I'm going to change from doing a five-minute transrectal biopsy to a new technique that's going to probably take me 30 minutes the first time, and, and maybe it's going to take me 30 to 40 cases to get down to 10 minutes for the biopsy. Maybe never. Maybe it's always going to be a 15-minute procedure. What about like, oh God, I got to learn a block that's completely different. It's a pudendal nerve block, essentially. Boy, you know, what is that? And then and then you get into the issues of cost, like the cost of the device. What does the code pay? Do I have to buy new ultrasound equipment? I could have probably picked some easier things here to, to tackle other than the biopsy market, but you're absolutely correct. And I think what we've done as a company now is I would say more than half of our marketing 
focus is not on the urologist, but on the public. The public is driving a lot of our activity at this point because patients go right to their computer and they type in and they start digging around and they're like, why would I want a transrectal biopsy? I want transperineal. Right. So uh, we are seeing a lot of that happening now too, where the patients say, it's happened in my career where patients are like, I want this procedure. Shoot, I don't do it. Well, that motivates me to go out there and learn how to do that procedure because I don't want to lose my patients. I like them and I, I'm running a business at the end of the day. So that's going to be, I think that's going to be yeah. a key element for us to get over the chasm, if you will, is the marketing efforts from the patient side of the equation. It's undeniable that anyone would look at the transrectal, bi it's like if I said, David, look, you don't know anything about biopsying the prostate, it's 1925, but you have access to great technology. You need to get a biopsy needle into the prostate. So here's the prostate, here's the pelvic anatomy. Now tell me what the best solution is to get there. You would never say go through a rectum and poke it, you know, 12 times. You'd never do that. You'd go through the perineum. I mean, at the end of the day, patients recognize that. It's logical. They're like, why would I take, you know, a lot of things we hear in the public now, it's kind of, it's entertaining. They're like, well, I don't, I don't get infection anymore. I'm like, oh, really? So all these publications, all these validated studies, all these um, Medicare um, code analysis of infections, it's all just somebody else. Well, it happens to everyone, okay? But we, we say these things to ourselves just because we can live with it. Oh, I don't need that because I get that. I don't need it, you know. But um, when you really sit down to think about it, the logic of where the future is going, again, this is really a shortcut. This is a shortcut to avoid using any antibiotics. It's a shortcut to no more rectal swabs, no more of the silliness, no more calls in the middle of the night about guys having fevers, finding the cancers and not worrying, you know, boy, I feel like I missed something. That I'm taking a shortcut, really, but it, it, it's a shortcut. But you're taking the, the long route to get to it. But ultimately, I think it's a it's a great shortcut right. through your career to get to the point. And quite frankly, why is it that it's a God given right for all of us to do a prostate biopsy? I mean, you know, the transrectal biopsy is such a, in my opinion, such an antiquated, terrible thing. But like robotic surgery, you can't just say I'm entitled to do robotic surgery. You've got to go out there and learn it. If you didn't learn it in training. It's a hard work. It's not a God-given right. Many urologists just drop certain surgeries because the robotics were better and they weren't trained to do it and they just moved on. Maybe biopsies, you know, should be similar too. Yeah, there's a lot of themes to what you just said so eloquently. One of them is challenging the status quo and a lot of what is taken as dogma is just not correct. I identify with what you said about changing behavior and taking a day off work is is a tough ask. I, I myself was, I would consider myself late to the transperineal prostate biopsy party and I, I took a day off um, and we're all under, you know, productivity pressures. And if Dr. Faust is listening, thank you for teaching me transperineal prostate biopsy. But, you know, when it comes down to it, we all want to do right by our patients. I had, the tipping point for me was just one more urosepsis. And as you said, you round on the patient, you have to look them in the eye and it's getting harder and harder to know that there's an alternative and not take advantage of it. It just becomes harder to explain and excuse at a certain point. Now, let's talk about one criticism of precision point. Some people say, you know, the freehand technique with an angiocath cuts down on the expense and the precision point is added expense. What, what other criticisms do you commonly hear and how do you uh, how do you address those? Well, yes, the cost is definitely, we've elevated the biopsy significantly because the way we engineered the device, we tried to engineer it in mind knowing that this is a commodity piece. This is something that's done. I mean, it varies based on analysis, but there's anywhere between one, 1.2 million and 1.7 million of these biopsies done a year in the US. So it's it's a high volume procedure and you cannot outprice yourself in the market. But now we're talking business here, brass tacks. What price you set in the market, you you can't raise your price in the market. You wind up lowering your price with innovation in the market over time. Yeah, you can increase prices based on inflation and other factors, but you're talking very marginal things. So when you set the price, you set the price on what you think the value is in my case, to the patient. So the way we looked at it was, 
how much would a man be willing to fork out of his own wallet if, if, if the device was not covered by insurance? How much is it worth for him to have one really good biopsy, really safe and highly effective at finding cancer? That's how we, we hit the price. Now, people are always going to try to come up with other ways to avoid the cost because it, it erodes their profit. So the system has to elevate itself. The coding for biopsies needs to be revamped. It doesn't even include MRI fusion. So, you know, for the people complaining about a cost of a device, what about the cost of, you know, a $250,000 fusion system? David, I could teach you how to do cognitive. Let's do cognitive and let's not use the device. Let's use a coaxial needle. And I will say that there are some skilled people with coaxial needles that do a pretty darn good job. But if you're trying to if you're trying to convert the entire urologic community, you're not going to do it with a coaxial needle and you're not going to do it well. That's why we've tried to maintain our integrity in the marketplace. Our company is more than just a company making a piece of plastic. You know, every, every urologist, we want signed off, we want trained, and there's a huge cost to that. So when people come up to the booth in the earlier days, they're like, well, how much, you know, you go on, you talk about, you know, this is so good for you and the patients, but then they're like, so what is it going to cost me? And I, I used to answer, I'm like, well, about $5 million. They're like, what? I mean, it costs millions of dollars to get a product to the market. So just like the drugs we use, I mean, we try, we prescribe, Mirbetric is my favorite overactive bladder medication. But how many times do you have your patients come in and say, my gosh, it's three or $400 a month for that prescription. Every single month, I think the cost of the device is a very, very small component of it. And you have to believe in it too. If you're, if you're afraid of your price of your product, if you're ashamed of it, then you've priced it wrong. If you're proud of it and you can stand behind it and elevate the market around you to come up to where you're at, then you've done a good job. Look at robotic surgery. I would say, hey, if, if urologists had to pay for the robot themselves, we'd be still struggling with laparoscopic prostatectomies. Who would want to do a laparoscopic prostatectomy today without a robot? The coaxial needle is laparoscopic prostatectomy. The precision point is robotic prostatectomy. It's that simple, David. And anybody that doesn't understand that has not used the device. Because if you look at the device, you're like, well, uh, pretty straightforward, whatever, holding a needle. But it's really a lot more than that. And once you understand where the cancers live, how to fly into it, when we monitor a coaxial needle, we're monitoring just the tip of the needle. But you have to remember that 16 millimeters, which is three millimeters back from the tip of the biopsy needle, is what captures the tissue. If you monitor those 16 millimeter runways or vectors, you're not getting into the seams when you're on one single fulcrum site. So, I mean, you can go on and on about that, but at the end of the day, we do have to address it. And it's going to happen with an approved appreciation of value over volume, which seems to be taking a millennium. Other than cost, it's been probably the training and the time. Boy, you know, I, I, do, a, I do a transrectal biopsy in five minutes. Now I got to learn this. And, you know, I got to buy some new ultrasound equipment. But you know, what I usually say to people, you're asking me what, what are some of the pitfalls? I'm giving you the, you know, the, the solution to that. But, you know, I like to work with good equipment in my practice. Like I don't, in my earlier days, it was all, I was trying to pinch this and pinch that, you know, financially. And it wasn't fun. It's a lot more fun using really good ultrasound equipment. It's a lot of fun using fusion. It's fun using a device specifically designed to do a job. I, I'm willing to spend the money to make my life better overall rather than pinching some pennies here and there. That's just the way I feel about it. And I think if you look at where our growth is happening, half of urologists now are employed. Hospitals understand the value. Kaiser Permanente was one of the first institutions to approve our device at our, at our listing price. No negotiation because they ran the numbers and they ran numbers to say that in the United States, if everybody switched to local anesthesia transperineal biopsy with the precision point, the U.S. system would save anywhere between like $340 and $750 million in the United States if they do that. So they saw even in Kaiser's network that their value in, in eliminating complications and proving diagnosis more than paid for things. So that's the... Um, that's the Nordstrom shoe salesman uh, response to your question. <laughs> but yeah, everything always boils down to price. No matter what you're dealing with, you've just got to 
stand by, you know, where you are in the market, what you represent. And to be honest with you, people do tend to come. And at the end of the day, you know, I want people to change the transperineal. And if somebody's like, listen, I just can't pull it off and I'm very skilled and I can do it with a coaxial needle pretty darn well, I would say, keep doing it, brother, keep doing it and doing a great job and spread it. You know, I've trained a big group in Toronto, Canada. We're not, we're not available on my old coaxial needle technique. And they just came to me at the AUA this past year. And they were like, man, you changed our whole practice. Now I'm not making a penny. You know, I can't even sell them a product. They did say, boy, if you ever get to Canada, we're switching like right away. But I mean, <laughs> you know, if you're really here to do a good thing for society, you know, the moment that if you, okay, one pearl of advice, if, if you're going to be an entrepreneur in the medical device space and your only goal is to make a lot of money, pick something else. The moment you're only focused on money, everything goes from a straight line to a curved line to zigzags and you get frustrated and you get anxious and you lose sleep. Yeah, money is important. Absolutely. But if money is the only focus, I don't think you're going to make it through this process, either happy, married, or you know, content and satisfied. Yeah, there's no question about that. I think that goes for all of entrepreneurship. You have to be in love with the the bigger goal and not uh, not in it for the money. I our conversation has been incredible. I think we're going to have to have a part two a year or two down the line to see where you're at. But we we talked about contributions in a career not necessarily being where we expect. We talked about the overlap between entrepreneurs and rule breakers, how some ideas fizzle and others succeed with a real tangible one, two, three, four steps that you give to medical device innovators. We talked about how you recognized early product market fit in various different ways. I really loved your answers and conversation. We're coming up on time. I just want to end with almost like a lightning round, just a couple of quick questions. What are your favorite books to recommend? One in the entrepreneurship arena and one in any domain. And what is your favorite app on your phone that you cannot live without? Okay, books. I, I would have to say there's a very short list of books for those that you know are budding entrepreneurs in the space. There isn't one good book that just is about medical device and what we're talking about, but there's great books. And, and quite frankly, one of those is obviously awesome, which is one you recommended that I read through on marketing and positioning your product. Really brilliant book, really easy to read and logical. How to F up a medical device company is the latest read that I would recommend. Because like I said earlier, it's better to have a conversation across the table with a wise man than read volumes of books. Well, this book talks about all the mess ups. And I think if you know what the mistakes are that we all make and avoid them, your, your path's going to be much straighter. I also like Zero to One by um, Peter Thiel. It's an easy read and it talks about how to really, you know, really think about the market around you. It's it's a little less about, oh boy, are you brilliant and great ideas, but you know, how you have to look at the market around you and how to try to create as much of a pseudo-monopoly as you can if you really want to hit it out of the park. Books that are not related to this. That's a hard one. Uh, I'm, it's been taking me about a year to get through um, A Gentleman in Moscow. I would suggest reading anything <laughs> in a fiction, historical fiction sense <laughs> would be my best recommendation. And apps I can't live without. I pulled, peeled myself away from social media years ago because it became too emotional. When I, when we first started this work, you know, I tried to get out in, well, not me, but others into the Twitter space. And it's, there's a lot of emotions out there and I just didn't have the stomach for it. You know, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to pipe in my opinion or defend myself and it just was too emotional for me. So none of them are social apps. I just have, you know, a company that helps us manage all of that. For me, um, quite frankly, it's the wall street journal app because my idea of the world is, is always follow the money <laughs> and, um, you know, good news reporting. I just have to thank you, David, too, for this opportunity. Um, I'm, I'm really quite humbled. I, you know, don't always like to be the focus of any attention, but you've been very intelligent and thoughtful, and your questions are excellent. And I, I just hope at the end of the day that maybe the messages we send out there are messages that people it can help someone else. You know, because at the end of the day, that's the most gratifying thing is when you give, you get. So whatever you're doing out there, if we're, if we're giving people some good information, it's going to come back to us in other ways, and it just makes the world a better place. 
No, Matt, thank you for agreeing to to have this interview. And your hope is exactly mine, that there is someone out there, perhaps many, who want to make this kind of contribution in their career. They're not sure exactly how, and they want to avoid pitfalls. And I think you've given some really practical advice to help people in that way. So I want to thank you as well. And I think that about does it. Well, thank you very much, David. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Backtable Innovation on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable Innovation is produced and hosted by Brian Hartley, Aaron Fritz, and Eric Yamaker. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Anne Dang, social media and PR by Chi Dang, and Dana Parker. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.